The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Welcome to uh, this seminar. I hope you're enjoying the preaching conference so far. Uh, This is the seminar on uh, preaching Christ in hard times. My name is John Curry. Uh, I'm the uh, the privilege of serving as pastor of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Ambler, as well as uh, serving as a lecturer in practical theology here at Westminster. We're going to be spending our time looking at uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, uh, 1 through 5, 5. And when you come into one of these uh, kind of seminars, you alternately uh, wrestle between, am I going to have enough material to make this worthwhile, and is it going to be too much material for people to, to digest it? And then your other fear is that somebody will already have stolen your thunder. Um, that has happened on a number of occasions, a number of accounts already. Uh, listening to Brian Chapel this morning, I was like, please don't say that. That's what I'm going to say in my seminar. Um, and then... And then this uh, just a couple of weeks ago, somebody sent me a link from John Piper, who was, uh, you always know you're in trouble when Piper said what you were going to say before you, and uh, it was he was dealing, I guess, at the Desiring God conference with the sophists and rhetoric. Did any of you see that link or hear about that? Yeah, Jackie did. And, and I, I, I saw it, and I went, oh no, Piper's already dealt with this. So uh, um, I'm glad none of you saw it, um, and just want you to know that if you did, I was thinking about this before I saw that, so. <laughs> Can we take a moment to pray, and then we'll look at the text. Our Father, we thank you for what we have been able to hear, and that it's true that you love us in your Son, Jesus, as your Son, Jesus, and that you have lavished your grace upon us. Father, we pray that in this hour you would give us eyes to see what the Spirit says through the Word. Uh, We pray, Father, that as we get uh, at times somewhat in detail about the passage, that you would give us endurance, that you would give us attention, uh, but that especially you would apply it to our hearts and to our ministries, that we might be encouraged to continue to proclaim Christ even in times that are hard. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you don't mind, I'm going to take this off. There is a handout going around. Uh, if you don't have one, uh, they're at the back. Thank you very much. Okay, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, I'm, I'd like to read a fairly lengthy passage, so if you'd follow along with me. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 1. We're going to go down to chapter 5. And dip just into the beginning of verse 6. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Uh, please follow along. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent which is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. Now, as we go into this, as we sort of explore this passage today, I'm obviously not going to be able to do uh, an exhaustive exposition, but at times we are going to get fairly close into the text. And so I want to ask you to bear with me at those times that we get into the text in some detail to keep your face in, in your Bible Uh, And then we're also going to come back up for air and apply things as we move along. I'd like to ask you to think about your own need for courage in ministry. Perhaps you fear the pain of strained relationships that occur in ministry. It may be the fear of feeling marginalized professionally because of stands that you take in ministry. Maybe you fear the financial consequences that ministry uh, brings upon you. And not a few of us may fear the church's future in our culture. It is quite possible that we or our children's generation could experience genuine persecution if violent religious agendas or immoral legislative agendas prevail. The premise of this seminar is that the ministry of preaching often has to be done in hard places. And when that is the case, we need encouragement. We need courage to continue to fulfill that ministry in the manner prescribed by Scripture. To put it another way, when you're under fire for preaching Christ openly, or when preaching Christ openly does not seem to produce the success we had hoped for, the temptation is to lose heart. 
to change methods. And that temptation is sometimes the result of external pressure, sometimes the result of internal pressure. I'd like to suggest to you today that that is precisely the place that God's spokesman Paul found himself. And that in that place he he resolved to continue to preach Christ clearly. And that we can find encouragement to do the very same by paying attention to how his view of his future fueled his resolve to preach Christ openly. My thesis in this seminar is this, that the resurrection of the body is not only the hope that we preach, but the hope for the preacher. The resurrection is not only a central fact that we preach, but a central fact that keeps us preaching. That the certain hope of future bodily resurrection is not only central to the preacher's message, but also to the preacher's motivation to preach Christ with clarity and courage amidst hard circumstances. Let me say that again. The certain hope of future bodily resurrection is not only central to the preacher's message, but also to the preacher's motivation to preach Christ with clarity and courage amidst hard circumstances. Now I'd like to attempt to make that case by focusing our attention on Paul's view of the relationship between his preaching and his hope of bodily resurrection that we find in this passage. And then I'd like to invite you to consider how we might apply this functionally in preaching ministry. Before we dive in in detail, let me ask you to notice a couple of things about the passage in general. First, the focus of this section is the ministry which Paul and others have. That's chapter 4, verse 1. And most of us in this room know enough about Corinth, the Corinthian correspondence, to know dissatisfaction and challenge to Paul's ministry provides the occasion for writing these letters. It's clear here that God's spokesman is addressing the ministry by God's mercy that he has against the backdrop of opposition to it. In other words, what Paul is doing here is defending the way in which he did ministry. Second initial observation. He's addressing the possibility of losing heart or of losing courage in that ministry. And I'd like to argue that this is the major thread in his argument at this point. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And then look at chapter 4, verse 16. So, we do not lose heart. And then down at chapter 5, verse 6. So we are always of good courage. In fact, he says that again in verse 8. Paul is giving us in this passage reasons for not losing heart, for being of good courage in the ministry that he's been given. Third initial observation. It seems clear that the circumstances which tempt him to lose heart or to lose courage is his vulnerability to bodily affliction in this life. Chapter 4, verse 7, he explains that this treasure which he has, which I take to be that ministry of the gospel explained in verses 4 to 6, this treasure is in jars of clay or common clay pots. And in the context, I think that's clearly a reference to the outer man, the yet corruptible body. He refers to his afflictions, you'll notice in verse 8 to 10, as carrying in the body the death of Jesus, 
so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And then verse 11, he identifies the reason for his afflictions as being so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Finally, verse 16, he locates the potential to lose heart in the wasting away of our outer nature in contrast to the renewal of our inner nature day by day. So, what I want to suggest to you today is that the point of this passage is Paul's continued courage to proclaim Christ in his yet afflictable body, bodily state. Well, why is it important to point these things out? Because preachers tend to use this passage to comfort other believers, to show them their hope in the face of affliction or even in the face of death. And that is a right thing to do. But as entirely appropriate as that is, please notice that this passage is for the preacher. It is specifically focused on Paul's motivation to a particular manner of ministry in the experience of hardship. That's what I'd like you to see if you see nothing else today. That connection. This is Paul's motivation, not just motivation for other believers. It's surely autobiographical. He's drawing on the theology that he knows to be true of believers in general and applying that to his his motivation to continue to preach. So that said, uh, let's focus more specifically on the manner of ministry Paul is defending, and then we'll take time to look at the motivation which encourages it. First then, I think it's your your first major heading there, Paul's manner of ministry. Essentially, his manner of ministry is the open proclamation of Christ as the realization of new covenant glory. The open proclamation of Christ is the realization of new covenant glory. Now, that is actually first expressed through a negative. You notice verse 2 and 3, he tells us what his ministry was not. What his ministry was not. Verse 2 and 3, God's spokesman tells us that he renounced certain ways which he identifies as disgraceful, underhanded, practicing cunning, and tampering with the Word of God. Here, uh, Paul is contrasting himself with those in Corinth who made a great show of outward appearance, who postured themselves with much outward glory. Uh, recently, commentators such as Anthony Thistleton in his uh, definitive commentary on 1 Corinthians and Dwayne Lipton in his book, St. Paul's Theology of Proclamation, uh, amongst others, have argued persuasively, I think, that the challenge to Paul's leadership in Corinth arose in light of sophist rhetoric and its impact upon Greco-Roman culture. It's hard for us uh, to imagine in our world the reach and the influence of rhetoric and oratory during the time of Paul. The ability to speak well was the sine qua non of leadership in ancient Greece. If you were going to be anybody and you were going to get anywhere, you had to be able to speak well. So a huge market grew for the production of schooling and handbooks on rhetoric and rhetorical technique. And there was, of course, as we know as students and as academics, different schools of rhetoric. 
And one of those schools which emerged were the sophists. These were professional educators who gave instructions to young men looking to be somebody and something, and they would also give public displays of their own eloquence to attract clientele, and they would do all of this for a fee. Important to realize that sophistry was a different movement from classical rhetoric, say in the tradition of Aristotle or Cicero. Classical rhetoricians were trained in search for truth and virtue. They were concerned to express thoughts and words in a way that convinced and compelled toward real truth and virtue. Even if what they believed to be truth was blind to the gospel, they believed that it existed and it should be sought. Sophists didn't believe that. Dwayne Litvin informs us that the sophist worldview, quote, abandoned, quote, any notion of a permanent reality behind appearances, and for all practical purposes, any idea of a God who could make such a reality possible. Absolute truth was unavailable, meaningless category for men. Reality is nothing more or less than what one makes of it. This is the first century, not the 21st century. Because truth, good, God doesn't exist, the purpose of argumentation then for the sophist is not to get to the truth, but to win to your advantage. For them, the ability to be persuasive was not about getting to the truth or to good, but to win, to win, to gain success. See, the point of oratory in that culture was not to be right, but to be applauded and to be awarded with the greatness that the world had to offer. Since wealth and status and social and political power traveled along the lines of eloquence and wisdom, the sophist's goal was to use rhetoric and the presentation of himself, his bearing, to win the approval and the applause of the crowds. I've seen about five minutes of this movie, Wayne's World, and there's a scene in that movie where the main character is trying to find the church where the girl he loves is getting married off, and he pulls up to a gas station and asks the gas station attendant if he can where Gordon Street is. And the gas station attendant delivers the line and he says, Oh, I knew a girl once on Gordon Street, and the movie stops. And the main character takes the gas station attendant, moves him aside, and brings in Charlton Heston, who then delivers the same line in the same costume. I knew a girl once on Gordon Street, and the main character begins to cry, just because it's Charlton Heston delivering the line. It's the way he delivers the line. That's sophistry. We're saying nothing, nothing that matters, but it's the way that we posture ourselves. It's the way we say our words, and the intention is to draw attention to us that we might gain success and greatness. What we have to understand is that in an honor-shame culture, such as Greco-Roman culture was, status and respect and success were gained by carrying the outward form of greatness. And that was personified in the sophist rhetors. There's a couple of epitaphs that have been found on graves of that period that have these modest inscriptions. Titus Fanius Modestus, a rhetorician, one to be ranked with the seven sages. Next Epitaph, I, a small tomb, conceal no small man, because he was an orator as regards speaking, a philosopher as to what ought to be taught. So we have to understand that to be exalted by the audience as eloquent in that culture, regardless of true virtue of your presentation, was the path to greatness. It was the way to glory. 
Now, take that and drop it in the midst of Corinth, which scholars tell us is a was a commercial, competitive, status-seeking, image-based, success-driven city. A city which Anthony Thistleton tells us in Paul's time was already suffering from a self-made person escapes humble origins syndrome. He quotes Ben Witherington. Quote, Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. The Corinthian people thus lived with an honor-shame cultural orientation where public recognition was more important than facts. In such a culture, a person's sense of worth is based on recognition by others of one's accomplishments. Hence, self-promoting public inscriptions as we have seen. Well, why do I give you all of that background? Let me suggest that this is the precisely the kind of approach that Paul is renouncing in our passage when he says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. What the apostle is renouncing is this, the self-promoting, status-seeking, success-oriented, manipulative, pragmatic, rhetorical approach of the sophist. He's refusing to adopt an approach to communication and ministry which would posture him as a great orator, a great man, and therefore supply him with outward glory. Instead, Paul chooses knowingly to present Christ in all of the weaknesses which afflicted him. Now, I don't have to take the time for you, I'm sure, to read the passages which uh, recount his experience. The Corinthian letters have those. But Paul had been poor. He had gone without food and clothing. He was weak and sickly. He went homeless. He had cruel enemies. He was unjustly punished by flogging and stoning. He was imprisoned. He was considered the scum of the earth. He experienced anxiety and care, and he was opposed by heretics. These, he says, in chapter 11 and chapter 12, are all weaknesses in which he boasted. Now, we listen to that as fairly informed Christians, as people who've been around the Bible for a little while, and we immediately know that Paul and other apostles enduring these sufferings was God-glorifying and Christ-centered. It was not so for a Corinthian listening to these uh, accounts. For the Corinthians, this was stupid. Corinthian culture interpreted this as bizarre. In an honor-shame culture, you don't go up by going down. People worth following don't allow themselves to be humiliated this way. Again, listen to Ben Witherington. In a city where social climbing was a major preoccupation, Paul's deliberate stepping down in apparent status would have been seen by many as disturbing, disgusting, and even provocative. The trial and hardship that God's servant had endured, the marks of the gospel on his body was actually being held against him by the Corinthians as weakness and foolishness. You see, the problem was that this steward of Christ's gospel didn't cruise into town looking buff and brilliant with an entourage of staff executing his agenda, making sure that he was comfortable and coiffed at all times. He didn't have an advance team who went in and announced his great title so that he could slide in and hold forth in a sonorous voice 
with great aplomb the great applause. Rather, verse 1 tells us the nature of this ministry required a renunciation of self and a promoting a renunciation of self-promoting strength posturing methods. You see, the ministry, this ministry that Paul had, which points back to chapter 3, and we don't have the time to cover, is that ministry of proclaiming Christ as the revelation of God's glory and as such, God's righteousness and renewal for believers. This ministry which Paul had is the proclamation of Jesus as the final and full revelation of God's glory so that He is God's righteousness for all who believe and lives in them to renew them more and more into His likeness. In short, the reason Paul didn't adopt the manner of greatness and glory in the culture was because his preaching was Christ, not himself, as the glory of God. And he deliberately renounced forms that would promote him as the great one. His manner then, despite cultural hardship, was to open his mouth and announce to herald Christ in his own weakness. That's his manner. Well, now I'd like us to look, uh, if we might, at his motivation. His motivation. What motivated him to maintain that manner of ministry? This is where we're going to get a little tight in the text, and I'd like to ask you to follow along with me. Verse 14 of chapter 4, Paul points to what it is that he knows that causes him to continue to speak. You notice what he says there. That he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Now, this isn't the first time that he's pointed to the resurrection in light of his affliction. Over in chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, he said this, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's really going to become a bit of a key phrase. The fact of his future resurrection in union with Jesus founded his faith to speak. Chapter 5, verse 1. The section that we are considering, and in the section we're considering, his whole argument begins to reach a climax in his, if you're looking at it, knowledge that his earthly home, which is a comparative tent, will be replaced by a house which is eternal. Chapter 5, verse 4, further describes this reality as that which is mortal being swallowed up by life. This too is referring to the resurrection of believers. See, the tent is a picture of transience, isn't it? It's fragile. It's impermanent. And in this analogy, the tent is what? our earthly home, which is capable of being destroyed. It's that in which we groan and which is mortal. Well, in chapter 4, those were all qualities which have been attributed to our outer man, our bodily existence in the fallen creation. But Paul knows 
what he knows is that if this tent is destroyed, notice, we have a building, a house, in comparison to a tent. A house which, as a building, is permanent with firm foundations. And how does he describe this house? Eternal. In the heavens. It's what we put on so that we're not found naked. It is life which completely absorbs our mortal existence. So, I conclude that in this passage, the house or the building which we know we have is the body which Christians will be in which Christians will be resurrected. That is the eternal weight of glory for which we are being prepared. To quote the early church leader Ambrose, this house signifies the immortal body in which when we rise again we shall ever be and the form of which is already made clear in the body of the Lord in heaven. And then just notice in chapter 5 verse 5 God's servant clenches his argument. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. The very thing is that eternal weight of glory, the bodily resurrection he's described already. And that moves him then in verse 6 to talk about the impact of this very thing on his life and ministry. So we are always of good courage. Well, why do I take you through that? Why do we focus on that little spiritual logic of Paul's argument? Because my point is this, that it is by focusing by faith on that very thing that fueled ministerial courage for a slandered, betrayed, fractured servant of Christ. Why could Paul, in the face of a culture which despised weakness and honored outward strength, why could he continue in his weakness to simply open his mouth and proclaim Christ as the glory of God? In this passage, at least, because he was looking forward to the eternal glory of the resurrected body. Now, if you've read it all, Don Carson's The Cross in Christian Ministry, and if you've worked in 1 Corinthians at all, you know that in that book, early on, it's the cross that is the focus of this kind of proclamation. Here, it's the resurrection. It's faith a faith focus on this very thing which causes him not to lose heart in proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord without tampering with God's Word. When the apostle is up against the temptation to posture himself for greatness, for success, when the gospel that he preaches runs counter the cultural avenues for glory. And the temptation is to remold the message or remold the method to achieve that glory. What keeps him simply proclaiming Christ in his weakness? It's a future, it's a focus on his future glory. So let me pause there for a moment and ask us to reflect on how the apostles' motivation matches our own. Does the resurrection of the body loom large in your own personal pastoral theology? Does it calibrate at all the way in which we assess our ministry success or greatness in this yet corrupted creation? Another way to put this would be, do we long for it as Paul in chapter 5 verse 2 says he does? It's worth noting Back up in chapter 4, verse 18, he says, where he says, This grasp of glory came as he looked 
for those things that are unseen. The word look there means to set a mark or a goal and to fix the eye upon it, like the way we would focus a telescope on a distant star. The yet unseen glory of the resurrection relativized the experience of Paul's ministerial weakness, of his affliction, because that glory was the mark on which he fixed his attention and his affection by faith. Now, I think that this is, uh, as detailed as that might be, vitally relevant for us in our culture as those who are expected to preach and those who are expected to lead. I don't know if you maybe followed the news this summer when the air conditioning was turned off at the UN building. And uh, the uh, chairman of the UN had to save energy for whatever reasons, turned off the air conditioning. And the problem, you know, the problem with that is that the heat starts to go up in the building. And so people were now permitted to come to work not dressed in their, you know, their regalia, their, their suits and their ties and their professional gear. They, they came dressed more casually. And the reporters got a hold of this. And I remember watching uh, the newscast as they uh, went in and interviewed people and said, well, do you think, you know, and the premise was this, because the clothes make the man, do you think you're going to be able to function and perform at the level you're supposed to? As an ambassador, as a representative of a nation, if you're not dressed outwardly the right way, will you have as much impact? And I thought, isn't that our culture? My outward appearance, my outward form is what gives me influence and what gives me impact. The Apostle Paul had none of those things. And the reason that he continued to proclaim Christ the way he did is because he knew the real outward glory, the real glory is yet to come. It might be profitable to ask ourselves, when was the last time I meditated on what God has said about the future bodily resurrection of believers as a promise to me? When was the last time that in the midst of ministerial or ministry suffering, I allowed the knowledge of that resurrection to rule the way that I seek hope or the way that I respond to pain or disillusionment or disappointment? That kind of personal reflection, I think, is deepened by considering just why it is that the future bodily resurrection was so overcoming for Paul. Why did the vision of putting off this temporary earthly dwelling and putting on the eternal heavenly dwelling embolden him? And why ought to it to embolden us? Let me suggest to you that it was because he knew that the resurrection of the body was the realization of the very thing that he had been created for as a human being. The vision of future bodily resurrection is so empowering because it is not only the final remedy for sin, but the realization of that for which he, we were created and which sin has corrupted. I'd like us to take a moment just to scan 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as this same writer describes the kind of body in which believers will be raised. And the bottom line as we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 45-49 is this, that we will be raised in a body which corresponds to Christ's resurrection body. And that little passage, as we'll see, contrasts the risen Christ with Adam, the first man. And as we read just that little portion, you'll see that in that contrast, he calls Adam the first man and Christ the last Adam. And here's why that's important. 
before we read it. In this passage, the first man, Adam, is described not as he was after the fall in sin, but in his original created state. In other words, the first Adam is described in the first Adam is described as he was in Genesis 2, not in Genesis 3. Adam is the natural man from the earth of the dust, as the living being who bore the image of God. In this passage, the risen Christ is contrasted to Adam in that state. Christ is the man of heaven, which means he's exalted, glorified, resurrected. So the correspondence as we read it is between created Adam as the first man and exalted Christ as the last Adam. Now, please listen and fo- as Paul focuses the lens on the kind of body in which we will be raised. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 45. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are all those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Do you catch his point? The spiritual body, like Christ's, that we will bear in the resurrection corresponds to the original image we bore in Adam. It's not just a response to our sin-corrupted state. The glory of the resurrection body in the last Adam is actually the realization of the image for which the first Adam was created. But it's more. The resurrection body goes beyond what could ever have been imagined in that pre-sin created state. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul wrote this, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Even in the Garden of Eden, they could not have imagined the glory God has prepared for those raised in Christ. Well, what's my point in taking us through this? When Paul, who wrote both 1 Corinthians 15 and our passage, asserted God has prepared us for this very thing, the very thing was not just a remedy for the corruption of sin. It is that. Thanks be to God it's that. But it is the restoration of the surpassing and the surpassing of the original pattern we were created for as humans. What does he say in that famous verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17? If any man is in Christ, new creation. Faith in the resurrection fueled courage for Paul, at least in part, at least in part, because he knew it realized his purpose, our purpose, for being created. Is it not the case that much of what we go through for the sake of proclaiming Christ is dehumanizing? Is it not the case that many of the hardships endured by preachers in a consumer-driven, success-oriented, status-seeking culture can be dehumanizing? Think about that particularly in the background of this sophistic tradition that opposed Paul in this context. In the face of a worldview and cultural expectation of strength which disparaged human frailty, his knowledge of the resurrection gave him courage. You see, as image bearers of God, we long for that created purpose. Despite all of the illusions of glory that we can build up in life here and now, we still feel the loss 
of the created purpose deep in our soul. And the loss of is disheartening, is discouraging, because it is actually dehumanizing. I think there's a great picture of this in George Orwell's description of 1984. That world constructed entirely around propaganda and in, it's constructed entirely around propaganda. And in one scene, Orwell pictures masses of people crushed and crammed into an industrial cafeteria as they hear statistics being poured out about their prosperity and their security. The party line that's bouncing around the room is that everybody, everybody is whizzing rapidly upwards. But the main character sits in the cafeteria and Orwell says, picks up his spoon to dabble with pale-colored gravy. And Orwell writes this, He meditated resentfully on the physical texture of life. Had it always been like this? Had food always tasted like this? He looked round the canteen, the low ceiling crowded room, its walls grimy from the contact of innumerable bodies, battered metal tables and chairs, placed so close together that their elbows were touching, bent spoons, dented trays, coarse white mugs, all surfaces greasy, grime in every crack, and a sourish, composite smell of bad gin and bad coffee and metallic stew and dirty clothes. And always in your stomach and in your skin, there was a sort of protest, a feeling that you had been cheated of something you had a right to. How do you feel when the party line is being trumpeted around the leadership magazines that you read? Or the big conferences that you go to, or maybe GA? When the line being poured out is all prosperity and success? When the narrative bouncing around the room is that everybody and everyone else is whizzing rapidly upwards and you're thinking about the pale-colored gravy that you have to go back to next Sunday or next week or in your daily life. When you feel like that, are you tempted, if, if not to give up on ministry, to say, let's just find another way. Let's find another method than proclaiming Christ from Scripture. Here's the connection. The low ceilinged, banged, sourish world cheats us out of the purpose for which we were created and our soul protests. But the eternal weight of glory God has prepared for us in Christ restores us, will restore us beyond anything that creation could even have envisioned. And if we focus on this very thing by faith, it will strengthen our heart and fuel our courage as God's image bearers as ministers, as servants in the low ceiling, banged, sourish world of yet corrupted creation so that we continue to proclaim Christ who is the image and glory of God. But we should notice something else about this very thing. Back to our passage in 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 5, he says, We do not look to the resurrection as a bare event, It's not an abstract hope in the future. As we heard this morning, God is always the hero. Longing for this very thing, Paul says, is ultimately an expression of faith in God. Notice, God's spokesman says, the ultimate ground of his hope is God. That God has prepared us for this very thing. Is that not like the great theme in Romans 8.31? If God is for us, who can be against us? Which, interestingly enough, that assurance is a response to the knowledge of certain glorification. Those whom God predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. Those He justified, 
be glorified. Paul's courage was fueled by the knowledge that since he was one of those who would be resurrected with Christ, it meant that God had prepared him for it and therefore God was for him. Why should he be disheartened? Why should he be discouraged by what man is saying about him or what man can do to him? Putting it this way also reveals that our participation in this glorious resurrection is God's work. It wasn't Paul's superior intellect, notice, or his powerful ministry, or his superior education, which guaranteed him future glory. He didn't qualify for the resurrection with Christ because he had a great religious feeling or a great ministry experience or visions, which we hear about later in the letter. No, it was God who has prepared him and every other Christian for glory. The Christian, the preacher at every stage, including glorification, is the work of God. God's spokesman can't talk very long about the blessing of salvation without going Godward. It's always, in the end, all about God. Even as we rejoice, as we draw courage from the manifold blessings of our salvation, it is ultimately about the one who has provided that salvation for us, for God, about God. Why is that so? Because, as we've seen, it's the realization, it's the consummation of God's work as creator. And that fuels Christian courage. Our final glorified state is God's work. It's according to God's purpose. It's for God's glory, and so it cannot fail. It cannot be frustrated by the schemes of men or Satan. And so we are always, he says, of good courage. Then lastly, and I know I've given you a lot, I've got just a little bit more. We should notice his confidence and courage is not simply a product of his own optimism. His courage is fueled by the fact that God, again, chapter 5, verse 5, has given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. The Apostle's confidence is not simply whistling in the dark. God has given His guarantee of this thing He has prepared Christians for. Here Paul draws on trade language, the language of commerce in his culture. Guarantee refers to a a deposit given as security for a future full payment. In this kind of deposit, the thing given as a down payment was of the same kind of the thing to be finally paid. The deposit's part of the whole, in other words. And what this common cultural image communicates is that God has given us a down payment which guarantees the full payment at the appointed time. He has given us the first installment of the very thing which is guaranteed to come fully later on. And so this embattled servant, his courage and his confidence is based on the fact that God who does not change and God who cannot lie, whose purposes cannot be thwarted, has given him a first installment of the final glory. And notice what it is, or rather, who it is. The guarantee is the Spirit. Something similar was said in chapter 122, who has put his seal on us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. God, the Holy Spirit, in our hearts is the first installment of that future glory which we will receive in full when Jesus returns. God, the Holy Spirit, in our hearts is the guarantee of the future bodily resurrection. 
So you see the spiritual logic of God's afflicted spokesman. Having the Spirit in our hearts is the guarantee from God that we will inherit the eternal weight of glory which surpasses the affliction we experience now. And that guarantee from God gives us confidence and courage in hard times. The capacity for Christian proclamation and Christian service and living and action despite our fears is fueled by believing this fact of faith. God has prepared us for bodily resurrection and guaranteed it to us by the Spirit. You can see, I hope, or perhaps, why that would fuel perseverance in ministry. You see, if I fear, here's the application, if I fear that by losing some aspect of this earthly body existence, I am losing the best life now, I'll negotiate my calling to preserve that life. But if my heart is gripped by the knowledge that the best life, glory, is yet to be lived, if I believe that, despite the innumerable blessings that this present bodily existence may bring, it doesn't compare to existence in the new creation. I am free then from fear that I am losing the best life now. And when I am free from that fear, I am free to be appropriately open and bold, to take appropriate risks. I am free to be faithful to proclaim Christ and trust in God. I think a a signal example of this kind of faith in what's almost still the modern era is, of course, the five missionaries that were killed by the Alcas in Ecuador in the mid-20th century. Five men, young families, in the prime of their life, put all on the line to proclaim Christ as Lord to a people bound in darkness and unbelief. The missionaries, as you know, lost their life. They lost the pleasures and genuinely God-given blessings of this creation. But their work and their walk were fueled by a value that was summed up by one of their numbers. His name was Jim Elliott. He said this, He is no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he cannot lose. I think very simply that's what the Apostle Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians 4 or 5. A heart gripped by the glory of our bodily resurrection is free to be fearless and faithful in the open proclamation of Christ. We are free to shed the pursuit of forms of outward glory and greatness in this world that we might proclaim Him who is the glory of God. So could I ask you again, where is your own need for courage in ministry? Is it relationships as you live the Lordship of Jesus? Is it the consequences amongst your congregation or your colleagues if, as you proclaim Christ in our culture? Be courageous and clear in your ministry of proclaiming Christ because God has prepared us for a bodily resurrection and guaranteed it to us by the Spirit. Well, I've included there some putting into practice questions for you. Um, we have about, I think, 10 minutes left. Do you have questions or uh, interaction on the topic or the material? Things I can make clearer or more helpful? Matthew. Could you just, uh, in maybe a little greater detail, um, talk about um, the way in which the 
future body with bodily resurrection um, surpasses the goodness of this creation. I'm seeing you brought back that passage of First um, Corinthians 15 with the imperishable and the honor. Yeah. And, and uh, those things. And I'm just wondering, do you see Paul in this passage having any particular aspect of that future? bodily resurrection that's particularly gripping him. Yeah. Uh, I think where I wanted to camp on that was, and I kind of went by the reference a little more quickly, it's 1 Corinthians 2.9, you know, where Paul says that no eye has actually seen or gets to heart imagine what God has prepared. Mm-hmm. So that as he looks forward to the consummation, that it's that there's nothing that we've ever seen in creation that actually even compares uh, to what God has uh, God has prepared for us. And then when we connect that to our future glorification being this resurrected body, uh, that's where I would sort of, where I would camp on that uh, to get that perspective. And of course, here I understand myself to be reflecting Dr. Gaffin's work and, and the way he teaches that. Other questions on this? Yeah, Jackie. Um, Tom, would you just repeat um, one of the lines that you used recently was talking about if I think I'm risk that I risk losing my best life now about negotiating ministry, can you just repeat that? Sure, I'll try. Um, if I can find it, yeah. Yeah. Um, if I fear that by losing some aspect of this earthly bodily existence, I'm losing the best life now, I will negotiate my calling to preserve it. Is that the statement you're looking for? Yeah. Other questions? Sir? The, the, the church these days, we cannot see how it's going on like, like Paul. We're going in a strong way and he uh, proclaimed the message of Jesus Christ and of Jesus Christ uh, as, as his goal to, to even to the entire themselves. But why the church didn't grow on the same level like Paul these days? Mm. The people try to keep the church silent. And we can see in the Antichrist, but most of the people are afraid. Because I don't know if we offensive the other or offensive ourselves <coughs> when we hide in Christ. And we need to go, you know, everywhere to claim and to tell the people who is Christ. We have this as well today. We are trying to do it. So, what's your opinion about this now? Um, about the success of the proclamation yeah. of, the, of the gospel in today's culture? Yeah, well, that's what kind of fear nowadays we feel it. Yeah. The, the Christian coming on the back a little bit, hiding themselves, you know. And you can feel how, how the people now seeing the Christians becomes weak day by day, not strong like uh, when, uh, when just 12 uh, uh, disciples started the missions and they proclaimed all such a gospel everywhere without any fear. Yeah. How, why do we have such a fear now? Well, that's a good question. Why do we have such fear now? Well, I, you know, I think there's probably, when you try to analyze the um, effect or ineffectiveness of the church in the culture, um, obviously as Reformed Christians, we always want to remember that any effect that we have is going to be according to God's sovereign determination. And so we, the church could be just as faithful as it could possibly be, and um, the results are still up to God. 
Uh, I can give you a, my, my personal opinion as to why some why we are so fearful. It's a little bit perhaps like you know when Israel goes into the promised land and God warns them that once you get to the promised land, you're going to get fat and then you're going to get lazy and uh, you're going to become faithless. And perhaps one of the reasons that we are so fearful is that we have so much. While we need to be thankful for our blessings, I think that we, my, my personal opinion is that we can be somewhat dependent upon um, the outward expression of greatness and success we're able to generate with our own resources because we are so resource rich. And of course, when you accumulate riches, now you've got something to lose. I think often the church is most effective when they've got nothing to lose. Um, so perhaps some of our fear is driven because we're it just as we're seeing counter in this passage, uh, we're so we're so careful, we're so concerned to hold on to what we think is life in this world. From suffering. Well, certainly, yeah. I, I'm afraid of suffering. <laughs> I don't think I don't think the message of the Bible is that ever we, we should ever. You know, we're really, really happy for suffering in and of its, itself, but that we're willing to rejoice in suffering for Christ. Other questions? Yeah. In chapter 4 of Second Corinthians, um, Paul seems to focus on the corporate aspect also of resurrection. And it seems like your presentation, if I yep. was hearing you correctly, was more individual. Yeah. But could you talk a little bit on exactly how a corporate aspect of um, resurrection hope can be the emboldener of our ministry as opposed to an individual one or vice versa? Yeah, good question. Um, well, certainly, yeah, you don't want to, uh, again, as we heard today, you don't want to isolate the individual from the corporate. Um, and you do have a lot of, I mean, even in verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. And I, what I understand Paul to be doing here is drawing on that which is true of the church, that which is true of, of, of those who are united to Jesus. And so therefore, the corporate language, we're just like you that we're going to be raised. But what he's doing is he's taking that theology that is true of the church and expressing how that drives his personal nature. So I don't think that you've got an individualistic versus a corporate situation. I think it's just, um, as we look at this, um, the, the occasion, if it, as it were, which drives his expression of this theology is his own ministerial suffering. And he's bringing that to bear, that theology to bear, on, um, on, on his own experience. Sure. It seems in here, as well as in maybe First Thessalonians and some other places, where Paul's hope is not just in the fact that he will be raised again at the last day, but that all those that he's ministering to will sure. be raised in the last day yep. and then with him. And it, it almost seems like there is no boldness if you're the only one that's going to be raised in gospel proclamation. Um, would that be, in, in like in verse 15, <coughs> he says, for it is all for your sake, yeah. so that the grace extends to more and more people, and then he concludes in 16 by saying, so we do not lose heart. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, and, and Paul talks about running in vain if other people didn't. The, the gospel basically wasn't effective to those mm-hmm. being ministered to. And I was just curious because, um, I mean, we wouldn't want to just uh, repackage kind of a health and wealth gospel 
to people in an individualistic way, kind of like if you sure. don't have this in the future, so you can look forward to that. But there's got to sure. be a connection to um, who we are as a corporate body that gives us strength. And yeah, power. I think I think what he's saying, I think what he's saying, what he's doing here is what's true of the church is it's united to Christ is true of him, and that, that's the reason he's willing to endure endure the suffering. So, that, and as you pointed out in verse uh, 15 that um, it, it, as you pointed out with the, you know, it has a to use an overused term sort of a missional edge to it that it's it's for the sake of, the, of grace being extended to more and more people yeah, yeah. as I'm giving you your, your seminar I hear a very interesting tension between being consistent of what we have been doing which is proclaiming Christ but yet at the same time looking forward to the future glory because that's what you're saying um, the best life is yet to come. Um, what, what is, um, we are not, we are still imperfect. Um, I'm trying to think practically as well as it means for us as proclaimers, as preachers of Christ. I mean, in response to the sophists, I don't think Paul, I, I, maybe I'm wrong here, but I don't think Paul actively tried to become much more rhetoric or rhetorically eloquent or something like that. But yet, how does it practically mean for us to continue to strive to become better? Yeah. But at the same time, being our motivation and our, our yeah. present manner is still the same. Yeah. I don't have a correct Yeah. I think what it does, uh, if I'm understanding your, correct, your question correctly, you know, there's, there's some, um, sometimes people take the, this kind of argumentation. I mean, well, Paul just was deliberately sort of a clumsy communicator. He didn't want it to sound like the sophist at all. And I mean, you just have to read Paul to know that he's very careful in the words he chooses. Sometimes the different words have an eternal, make an eternal difference. Uh, that his arguments are very well put together. He's not against reason. But I, I think what needs to be, at least in the research that I've done, particularly if you look at, say, Dwayne Lipton's work, the, um, the, the whole thing about the sophists was not just the way they used their words, but it was a whole package. It was, it was the fact that they were using words uh, as an end in themselves, and that, that, and that that end was that they would be applauded and awarded, and that, that was tied into a whole way that I carry myself. So I don't think we should interpret, you know, and particularly like, say, 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul, you know, Christ did not send me to preach in eloquent words of wisdom, lest the, the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. He's not saying, I'm not concerned about how I structure things rhetorically so that it makes sense, or so that it's true, or so that it's persuasive. But I don't adopt... Um, I, I, I allow my weakness to shine through, and I don't adopt these culturally expected, the palatable, uh, and and uh, pl- you know forms of plausibility in the culture, if you like, that I, and the way that I present myself or the way that I present my gospel. And so I think the practical side of it is um, to be concerned to use to use the minds God's given us and use words well in the service of the gospel, but to resist feeling like we've got to adopt those images of success and greatness in order to make it convincing. I think that's where the real nub of the practicality is. Does that address your question? Yeah. Okay. Okay, uh, I'll stay to take questions if you like. Uh, we're, we're at 3 o'clock, and I don't want to keep you from your coffee. I know that would irritate me. So. <laughs>